A new era is unraveling before us, and conversation, data, and action are our only hope. Join us to learn together about the future of cities and how entrepreneurs are approaching our present-day challenges. The goal of this podcast is to unite real estate lovers, technology adopters, environment enthusiasts, and creative thinkers that are working toward achieving greater and fair collaboration for all. Come sit with us and discover how investing in these key initiatives improves our built environment, the public discourse, and climate change. We examine diverse issues through interviews and conversations where going off on a tangent is encouraged, hoping to help you become a more nuanced thinker and find comfort in data. Hi, this is your Tangent co-host, Edward Cohen. Today on Tangent, we have the opportunity to learn from the big short investor, Steve Eisman, who famously predicted that U.S. housing market crash during the Great Recession of 2008. Steve was featured in Michael Lewis's book, The Big Short, and was later portrayed by Steve Carell in the Oscar-dominated movie of the same name. Steve is currently a senior portfolio manager at Newberger Berman in New York City, where he manages an alternative equity fund which means that his clients can benefit from his short positions on the public equity markets in addition to traditional long bets. Hi, Steve. Where does this podcast find you? Uh, I'm in the North Fork of Long Island in this house that we're renting. We've been here since May. Enjoying the perks of uh, remote life. Not bad at all. Yeah. Good stuff. Uh, first things first, let's uh, start by drawing some contrast and compare the collapse of the housing market during the financial crisis of 08 with the current economic downturn caused by the pandemic. How is it affecting real estate values different this time compared to 12 years ago? Oh, it's dramatically different. So if you go back to, let's say, 06, 07, you had a very overlevered banking system, dramatically over leveraged. So for example, the average bank between 1997 and 2000 saw its leverage go up anywhere from three to five times, depending upon the institution. So you had an over leveraged banking system. You had a housing market that was in a bubble and you had a massive asset class subprime which was owned all over the world where the underwriting standards had gone to hell. And the combination basically of those three caused the financial crisis, caused a dramatic decline in uh, residential real estate prices, and caused basically all the banks to go bankrupt, but for the fact that the, the governments of the world bailed them all out. And that was the financial crisis. And, and because it was a financial crisis, like a real financial crisis where the, the system was over-levered, it took a long time to come out of years. And that's why the growth rate of after the financial crisis during the Obama years was around 2% per year, very weak. It was basically a tremendous hangover over the economy. You know, if you fast forward to today, and you had a pandemic, it caused the economy to collapse but for a very, very short period, I think the system actually learned from the um, financial crisis. So you had massive fiscal and uh, monetary stimulus very, very quickly. Um, perhaps even more importantly, because of Dodd-Frank and the regulators, the banking system was not over-levered. There was no asset class that was in a bubble. And housing prices were not in a bubble. You have the same um, issues in the background as you had before. You had a much healthier financial system. So, you know, for example, you know, Citigroup pre-crisis was levered around 35 to 1. And when the pandemic hit, I think the leverage was 11 to 1. Mm -hmm. So one-third. It's a massive difference. And so as a result of that, the banks, while they had to increase their loan loss provisions and their earnings were much lower, 
didn't lose money, this financial crisis, this, this crisis. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we're coming out of this much more quickly, because we don't have a, a financial crisis within the financial system. Work, I think, has to be done is in the bond markets. Uh, you know, in 2008, not only did the banks blow up, but the bond markets blew up. And this time around, the bond markets blew up again. Mm-hmm. And the Fed had to come in and bail them out. And, you know, if I was a regulator, that's what I'd be focusing on. Got it. I mean, yeah, I think you summarized it quite well that the three typical causes of financial crises are easy money, poor regulation, and uh, public delusion. And I think we're seeing a bit of that now. Uh, also important to point out that uh, after the housing crisis more than a decade ago, a lot of smaller mom and pop home builders went out of business, which is why we're facing an unprecedented housing shortage crisis today. Uh, so when it comes to home sales, there are fewer uh, homes for sale mm-hmm. in the U.S. today than ever recorded in data going back nearly 40 years. Uh, this historic housing shortage is driving up home prices much faster than incomes and, and making home ownership less affordable for more and more Americans. I also wanted to get your take on uh, the transfer of wealth that we're seeing uh, from commercial real estate to residential. And I cannot see anything else than it becoming a permanent feature and not just a cyclical change in terms of shifting demand from office in retail to housing. I mean, the, the estimated value of commercial real estate assets in the U.S. is $16 trillion. And by comparison, the residential sector has $27 trillion in assets. So I think we're going to see that gap widen even more as employees spend more time at home and the lines between hospitality and residential blur thanks to uh, the rise of a more distributed, less centralized workforce. So again, just to restate, how do you see this? Do you see this being as a more cyclical or permanent shift? Um, I wouldn't stake my life on it, but um, I do think it's probably going to be permanent. People want out of the cities now because they're scared. Whether that'll be true once everybody gets vaccinated, I don't know. I think it's clearer that we don't need quite as much commercial real estate as we did because even after the pandemic is over, people are going to spend more time at home and work from home. And I think that's permanent. So... Uh, the, the commercial real estate companies are going to go through a real evolution here. How long the housing boom lasts, that I don't know. And we're certainly going to dive into that in a second. But uh, yeah, talking about employees' preferences and habits, I mean, we spend on average a decade of our lives or 90,000 hours in the office. And on average, we spend 10 days a year commuting in America. I don't see that going back if, if we can avoid it. Well, I think people are going to go back to office. They're going to go back, but they may not work in the office five days a week. Right. And so there's, I think companies are going to start to reconfigure their office space over time to be able to use less. But that doesn't mean people won't go to the office. Then it's not going to go to the office all the time. Definitely, definitely. Uh, recently, the Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell once again called on Congress and the President to do more to help the economy, uh, although I wouldn't hold my breath on until the new president is sworn in. But uh, Powell did warn Washington is in danger of making the same mistake it made after 2008 financial crisis. Uh, what does Powell mean by the same mistake? Well, you had fiscal stimulus right after Obama got elected, about $800 billion, and then there was nothing. And that's one of the reasons why the economy stayed weak all those years. You know, we've had massive fiscal stimulus this year, but it seems like the, the, the you know, Congress, for whatever reason, you know, I have my theories about it, but I don't want to get too political, is not going to be able to pass or may not be able to pass any more fiscal stimulus because I guess 
Well, for reasons that are obvious, you know, you can read the newspaper <laughs> yourself. But assuming that there is no fiscal stimulus, then we're not going to really come out of the recession until everybody gets vaccinated, which wouldn't be till April, May, June. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, uh, and how do you see a Biden administration with uh, Janet Yellen as Treasury Secretary approaching this crisis and how will it impact the housing market? That's not the issue. The issue is, you know, Georgia. If uh, Georgia stays Republican, or at least one seat stays Republican, the Republicans keep the Senate. And it's going to be very hard for a Biden administration to get anything passed. Right. It's not going to be that easy even if they win both seats in Georgia. Mm-hmm. But it's going to be next to impossible to get anything passed. Definitely. If, if they don't have the majority in the Senate. Uh, all, all eyes on Georgia, January 5th. But uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of uh, Biden's uh, housing plan, he did propose a $640 billion plan, uh, which would give first-time home buyers a down payment, the tax credit of up to $15,000 that they could use. Uh, that seems uh, promising. Yeah, but it's not going to happen if they don't get control of the Senate. You could just forget about it. Forget about it until Georgia. <laughs> so with that in mind, let's dive more into the housing market. Uh, real estate developers, lenders, and residents are trying to figure it out. Is it better to be a renter or a homeowner in the U.S.? Uh, do you see Americans opting more uh, either as a lifestyle choice or being forced to be more renters instead of homeowners? I mean, right now, because rates are so low and mortgage rates are at all-time lows, you can get a mortgage probably for 3% or less. I would think anybody who can will try and buy a house because the monthly payment is so low. So I don't see that this trend towards suburbia changing until the Fed starts to raise rates. And that might not happen till 2023. So we have a good two year and a half, two years to go. Suburban rents are outpacing city rents in 27 out of the 30 major metro areas across the U.S. And when it comes to rentals, I mean, the the demand side for single-family rentals is driven by three forces, I think. Uh, Lifestyle choice, economic choice, and and COVID. And from an investor's perspective, you know, this is an asset class that I believe investors and institutions can invest at scale, making it attractive, you know, with so much dry powder sitting on the sidelines waiting to be deployed. It's It's a cash flow play. That's fair. I agree with that. But I think the move out of the cities will probably stop um, once everybody's vaccinated. Mm-hmm. It'll slow. But you know, the fact that rates are so low means more people can afford to buy a home than they could before. Definitely. Um, let's talk about Lennar, one of your uh, biggest home construct, one of the biggest home construction companies in the U.S., based in Miami, which uh, you're an investor in, if I remember correctly. The nation's home builders have been benefiting from the stay-at-home culture of COVID, as people look for larger, more high-tech homes in the suburbs. Uh, with the Pfizer news about the vaccine being around the corner, uh, Lennar's stock tumbled seven uh, percent last month. Uh, how do you see Lennar and other home builders performing in a post-vaccine world? You know, it's hard to say. Uh, I mean, what's what's happening now, what happened in the first, until very recently, is the order levels skyrocket, skyrocketed, just went off the charts. They're slowing now, but the home builders are raising prices. So, you know, if you look at a model of any home builder, are its earnings more sensitive to price increases? The answer is price increases impact earnings more than order growth. Mm-hmm. So, you know, next year for the home builders will be a great year in terms of earnings, but the order growth will obviously be slower because, you know, it's the law of large numbers starts to catch up to you. Um, I still like the home builders, but they're not, you know, the, from a from a sort of a capital allocation perspective, they're not post-COVID plays. They were COVID beneficiaries. 
So the market is sort of wrestling with, you know, is, 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 will they sort of tread water here for a while until we have better visibility on earnings or if rates stay low? I mean, I, I think if rates were to go up a lot, the home building stocks would get killed, like they always do. Mm-hmm. But barring that, I, I still think they're good investments. On Tangent, instead of sponsored ads, we have Stimulus, where we dedicate a minute of airtime to amplify a small business or nonprofit that is making a difference in their cities. Far too many families are struggling to pay rent as we deal with the long-term economic fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic. The ongoing impact of this crisis has made even clearer that home is a basic need that everyone, regardless of race, income level, or immigration status, deserves. Project Parachute is a coalition of New York City property owners who have pledged to help the most vulnerable renters remain in their homes and provide a vehicle for the real estate industry to contribute toward the economic viability of the city and its residents. This important initiative provides critical relief for families and exemplifies the type of cross-sector, collaborative effort that will ensure our city not only recovers, but does so equitably. For listeners who are interested and able to support this noble mission, please go to enterprisecommunity.org and click on Donate. That's E-N-T-E-R-P-R-I-S-E-C-O-M-M-U-N-I-T-Y dot org. If you are a nonprofit leader or small business owner who would like your mission featured on our stimulus section, email us at tangentcommunity at gmail.com. And now back with our friend of Tangent. To bring up a prop tech angle, uh, an area of single family homes that has been in dire need of disruption is the property management side, especially maintenance. Uh, an interesting company I came across that is solving this issue is a Chicago-based Nest Egg, which provides a vertically integrated property management subscription service for DIY uh, landlords. Uh, I, I think it would be a gangster move for Lenar to acquire a property management tech stack such as Nestec to strengthen its position in the housing market. Is Nestec public? I never heard of it. No, it's an early stage uh, company. But, early stage company. Yeah, but okay. uh, there's there's a bunch of them out there. And uh, at least when I scouted for uh, student housing opportunities or uh, single family home rentals, uh, always the issue was who's going to manage them? How am I going to manage them? And I think we, we have that technology, just uh, we don't have any real estate at scale. Right. Uh, let's uh, zoom in to the single family home for rent category. As we see a surge in interest in suburban homes and a pullback from urban centers, is single family home for rent an enduring real estate sector or rather more of a current tactical investment? Uh, you know, when the, when the sector was newer years ago, I think the biggest question was, can you get any operating leverage out of managing all these homes? I think there were a lot of skeptics. But at this point, it seems like they are. So I think it's here to stay. You know, I think people are going to buy in the suburbs and they got to rent in the suburbs. And um, I don't think that's going to change. So yeah, I think it's a very viable asset class. Yeah, I mean, single family home rental market is evolving into an institutional investment, much as multifamily did more than two decades ago. Correct. I, I at least was shocked to learn that institutional ownership still remains a very small part of the overall single family rental market with 200,000 homes of the more than 90 million single-family units in the U.S., according to uh, data from the National Rental Home Council. So they got, a, they got a huge jump start in the financial crisis. They were able to buy massive amounts of homes in a very relatively short period of time. I think what the issue going forward is the industry wants to grow, but it's not easy to grow, I think, in size because there are very few foreclosures now because people are in better financial shape. 
So you'd have to buy homes as they come up for sale, which is basically one at a time. So it's hard to grow, the, I think, the base quickly, which is what I think the issue is. I'm, I'm sure the industry would love to triple itself, but go find the homes to do that. Definitely, definitely. That's a challenge. Uh, I mean, a number of large managers, including uh, Blackstone, KKR, and Aris Management are already active in the sector of not only operating single-family homes for rent, but also developing new supply, which is driving the build-to-rent asset class. I mean, I know in, in real estate, typically, if you want to scale faster, you just buy existing instead of building from scratch. But in this case, with newer uh, construction technologies and uh, dry powder waiting to be deployed, I think uh, build-to-rent asset class could be certainly uh, a growth opportunity. It's a growth opportunity, but like I said, it takes time. You know, you're not the, the industry was able to buy thousands upon thousands of homes and basically one fell swoop. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about property technology, specifically Zillow, and start with your uh, short prediction back in August 2019. Uh, the stock tumbled almost 50% the following month after your CNBC interview. I mean, that was too fast and too soon, Steve. So please uh, give us all a heads up more in advance next time. Uh, now, <laughs> now this year, uh, you have jumped back on the Zillow bullwagon and the company reported profits that soared to $4 million during Q3 2020 compared to a net loss of $65 million same quarter last year. How can Zillow lead this new era of residential real estate transactions? Um, you know, I was short Zillow for a long time. I covered it around April, and about a month later, I bought it, which is unusual for me. But I bought it because I felt that because of COVID, um, more and more people would be searching for homes online. And Zillow's business of buying homes would be a lot better as some people would just want to sell their homes without having individuals traipsing through their homes looking through it. So that's why I bought it, done better than my wildest dreams. <laughs> and you know, I still hold it. But you know, how well they'll do you know, it, it seems like some of the trends in housing got completely turbocharged because of COVID. And Zillow is just one of the biggest beneficiaries of that. So it's the dominant player for buying a home online, I mean, shopping online. And, um, you know, it's, it's now viewed without question as a major disruptor for the real estate industry. And that's why I own it. And I don't think that's going to change. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, Zillow has recently completed its transition from our real estate search portal into brokerage that streamline, streamlines uh, buying and selling of homes and, and online services, aka iBuying, right. uh, and also included uh, mortgage, title, escrow services. And uh, this move certainly pissed off more New York City brokers than the New York City uh, Rent Guidelines Board. But uh, however, I think Zillow has tremendous potential in the remote era, like you said. I agree. Totally. Yeah. Worth mentioning that CoStar, the commercial real estate giant, has been gearing up to compete with Zillow for the residential sector and just... Uh, a couple of weeks ago, it announced that it acquired uh, HomeSnap, uh, a residential search portal. Yes, serving, uh, HomeSnap's, yeah. a, HomeSnap's a very small company. Yeah. Um, it's going to take, I think, CoStar quite a while to scale. But that's a risk. I would agree with that. Definitely. But uh, I, I agree with you that you know, CoStar still lacks the, the industry and consumer data and lots of eyeballs compared to Zillow. I mean, Zillow reported 2.8 billion visits to its sites and mobile app during last quarter. And Costa reported uh, 300 million visits, so it's really, right. it's really not in the same. It's not in the same league at all, at all. 
So let's talk about something spicy and highly anticipated. Potential big shorts for 2021. Uh, what do you have prepared uh, under your sleeve, Steve? Well, I'm not going to talk about individual names, but I, I look, I think we're in a world of free money, massive fiscal stimulus. So the direction of the market is generally going to be up, I think, again. So your shorts have to be very, very tactical and very, very stock specific. Hmm. And so I would think of two areas, both involving regulation. There's the for-profit education industry, which I've been involved with before. And what I would say is that under the current head of Department of Education, Betsy DeVos, there's been almost no regulation of for-profit education companies. And my guess is under a Biden administration uh, and a new head of Department of Education, this industry is going to be scrutinized again very, very carefully, and it's going to hurt their growth. So that's one area I would look at. And the other area I would look at is um, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Uh, the current head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau basically doesn't believe in the CFPB. And that person will step down certainly the very first day that, of the Biden administration and will be replaced. Now, it's possible, you know, given the makeup of the Senate, it's going to be very hard to get anybody approved by the Senate for the CFPB. Then that person will then just be a, uh, an acting head of the CFPB. But I think one of the things that the head, that, that person will go after will be subprime auto lending. And so that's an industry that should be looked at. Interesting. Uh, just to clarify, the CFPB is a Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Correct. Uh, I wanted to also bring up now that we're in the talks of shorts and uh, regulation or lack thereof uh, regarding antitrust concerning big tech, in particular Facebook. I mean, uh, this week the FTC and 47 other states sued Facebook for anti-competitive behavior. Uh, better late than ever, but uh, specifically with regards to uh, WhatsApp and Instagram acquisitions. Are we going to break them up? Uh, I mean, what do you think? I mean... The Google case is different from the Facebook case. The Google case is a very fact-specific kind of case. It involves how Google search engines impact all the companies that advertise through Google, get searched through Google. And so that's a, ma a massive amount of discovery that needs to take place. So I would imagine that case is not going to see the light of day for at least a year and a half in terms of being anywhere near a courtroom. Facebook is not as complicated from a factual perspective because it just involves the purchase of uh, WhatsApp and Instagram and whether that creates a monopoly. But even that's not going to see the light of day in terms of a trial till at earliest late next year. So in the meantime, you can own both stocks. As we get closer to the legal issues, you could start to rethink them. But I don't think you have to worry about them for a while. Got it, got it. I mean, I... You know, in terms, in terms of the actual impact, my feeling is that um, the Google case is less intrusive than the Facebook case. So the Google case, if the government wins, they're not going to... I don't think they're going to break up Google, but they may impose rules of conduct on Google that might make the company somewhat less profitable, but I don't think that's going to be as big a problem. Uh, breaking up Facebook, you know, some people would like to argue that the, the sum of the parts is worth more than the whole. I don't agree with that. I think there are huge synergies between all those things. So Facebook losing and get, being broken up would be a big problem for that stock. But like I said, we don't have to worry about it for a while. 
I see. I mean, in, if you ask me, my humble opinion is that it's, it would be the capitalist thing to do to break them up because it would incentivize competition and it will end up unlocking tremendous shareholder value. You know, There's a problem. The problem is that antitrust law is governed by the Chicago School and it dominates legal theory and you have to show some type of harm to the consumer. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's very hard to show harm to the consumer when you're dealing with entities that don't charge the consumer anything. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean you can't win, but it's not going to be easy. 100%. That's a, certainly a separate issue in terms of how we define antitrust and, and monopoly. And, you know, Google search, uh, which is by all means a monopoly, but is it bad for the consumer? Probably not. And if you just take it as a search engine, we love Google. It gives us the best information uh, in most cases than not, but uh, it is a problem that it serves both sides of the ad space and, uh, you know, is, is kind of all-encompassing in terms of uh, digital advertisement. Uh, the Facebook case is, is certainly more interesting, but I can, I can imagine Facebook arguing that the, the acquisitions of uh, WhatsApp and, and Instagram were allowed to proceed by the FTC. So why now? And, and so on. But uh, it will certainly be interesting. I don't think that's just, I don't think that's just positive at all. I don't think the fact that the FTC approved the transaction will have any bearing legally. I mean, I was a lawyer, but <laughs> for what it's worth, you know, the government can just say, well, look, we changed our mind. We, we saw how they conducted themselves afterwards and we're, and we're shocked, shocked, I say. So well, I, hope I, you're right. I don't think that's dispositive. I hope you're right. Um, <laughs> I don't think you're right. <laughs> In terms of uh, commercial real estate or hospitality REITs, how do you see them uh, performing going forward? Um, look, the commercial real estate REITs have had a bounce because of the hope for a vaccine. But I think they have very big long-term issues. Uh, the hospitality reads, I have no opinion. I've never really looked at them. Got it, got it. Yeah, I mean, I was looking at some just population statistics in Manhattan, and we had uh, more people living in Manhattan in the 1950s than uh, last year. And that's mostly because of the rise of the office buildings in Manhattan and partly also the rise of Queens as a residential uh, area. But uh, it was just baffling to see how Manhattan has basically become a a place to uh, work and play, but to live, population has decreased. And I think we have to get people back in the city to get the city re-energized. Agreed. Great. Last but not least, we want to put you in the discomfort zone, Steve, and uh, we want to challenge you to share an experience you had that helped you change your mind about a previously believed idea. Uh, the thing that comes to mind is 2002. I, I was involved with a company called Household International, which was one of the original old-time subprime lenders. They did subprime housing, subprime auto, and they'd been around for a very, very long time. And I had, through my research, developed evidence that the company was really, in my opinion, engaged in massive consumer fraud. They were basically tricking, on the mortgage side, tricking consumers into believing that that the rate that they were paying was significantly lower than the rate that they were actually paying. And I I was actually shocked by it. And it really kind of changed me because it made me realize something that I now think of as, as obvious, but I was just not attuned to back then which is that there can be really bad actors in this world who run companies, who try and take advantage of people. Sometimes they do so legally, sometimes they do so illegally, but they engage in very unethical practices. And it really kind of changed the way I looked at things from that time on. Very interesting and uh, eye-opening how that also uh, prepared you most likely for what unfolded uh, six years later in 08. I think that's fair. 
Interesting. Well, last but not least, Steve, uh, where can our listeners find you and uh, Newberger Berman if they have any questions? Uh, you can't. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not on Instagram. I don't do, <laughs> I don't do social media of any kind. You'd have to email me, and I'm not giving out my email address. Fair enough. We're gonna remove that from the interview. You could email Eddie. You could email Eddie, and Eddie can refer the email to me. <laughs> That's the only way you're gonna get to me. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll get, uh, I'll get on it. But uh, Mr. Steven Eisman, thank you once again for being here with us today on Tangent. Very interesting insights into the current state of the housing market and the public markets, and we appreciate your uh, highly anticipated big short predictions. Gracias. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's it for today. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with a friend. Thanks for listening to Tangent. And remember, collaboration is our superpower as a species. So stay curious and always be learning.